We're going to go to Mark chapter 12 again this morning. We've been making our way through this section of the Gospel of Mark. We're in the second half now. And as a reminder, we have been looking at what's commonly called Passion Week. We know that on Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. That's back at the beginning of Mark 11. Um, On Monday morning, he cursed the fig tree on the way in. He condemned the temple. We've looked at these passages in past weeks. And then this is our fourth or fifth time talking about Tuesday of Passion Week. There was the lesson of the fig tree. The authorities came and questioned Jesus about his authority. Where are you getting your authority to teach these things, to do these things, to work these miracles? And then he told the parable of the wicked vine dressers at the beginning of chapter 12. And then last time, we looked at the question that the Herodians and the Pharisees brought to Jesus. They asked him about whether they should pay taxes to Caesar. And he used that as an object object lesson, the coin itself, to remind us and them that if it bears Caesar's image, give what you owe. Give back what you owe, is literally what he said. But whatever bears the image of God should be given back to God, and that's us. We bear God's image, and so we are supposed to give ourselves back to him. The next group came with their question. That's, that's where we are today with the Sadducees. I'll tell you more about them in a few minutes. But their question has to do with what happens to us when we die. Anybody ever asked you that? Have you ever read or heard that question anywhere? Are we annihilated? Are we in some sort of limbo or soul sleep? Do we just cease to exist? Is there life after death? Thank you for saying no. I appreciate that. These questions are current. They are questions today, but that's what they were talking about back then as well. This group called the Sadducees. They asked him a similar question about what happens to us when we die. I hope you've had a chance to find your place. I'm going to read the passage for us. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, with me. This is Mark chapter 12. I'm going to begin in verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife shall she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly 
mistaken. Let's pray together, please. Our Father, we're grateful for this time together that you have gathered this group of people in this place. You have appointed this time for us to study your word together. And we thank you for providing this opportunity, for providing your word in a language that we can understand. Father, would you grant us understanding today? Your Holy Spirit is the one who breathed this out, in this case through Mark. Your Holy Spirit is the one who will bring things to our remembrance, will teach us all things. And that's what we're asking for today. Holy Spirit, fill me, empower me to teach your word this morning that your word would go forth and accomplish what you send it to do. Give us ears to hear, Lord. May we understand what you have for us. Your, your word is alive, it is powerful, it is sharp, it, it pierces into the innermost parts of us. And we're asking for it to do that today. That we would receive encouragement where we need it that we would receive comfort where we need it, but that we would also receive conviction where we need it. Please do a work in us. May this not be a time of just sitting or listening or even just learning, but it would be a time of receiving your word with willing hearts ready to do what you show us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If I were to sum up everything I'm going to talk about today in one word, it would have to be resurrection. That's what we read in our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians 15, the idea that the dead will come back to life. Because Jesus did, we have the hope of eternal life. And that is the first point for today as well, that God raises the dead. We're going to see both of these points play out in verse 25 when we get there. God raises the dead. And then human relationships will be different in heaven. We'll talk about what that looks like in this passage. But the fact is that eternal life with God in heaven is not just the same thing that we have here on earth a little bit better. It's not even the same thing we have here without sin. It is different. Our bodies will be different. So we'll talk about that some. Go back with me, please, to verse 18. And we're going to work our way through this a verse at a time. In verse 18, it says, then some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to him. So who are the Sadducees? I'm sure many of you are aware the Sadducees were basically a political party, but they were a religious group. They were a religious sect. And they were wealthy. They were worldly. And they were fewer in number. We've talked a little bit about the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of Israel, made up of 70 plus one. So 71 people. And they would have been the majority of that group. They're wealthy, they're influential, they're powerful. They had a tendency more to compromise with Rome. So in that case, they would have been a little bit more like the Herodians. But in that time, they had the majority of the Sanhedrin and all of the high priests, all of the chief priests were Sadducees. This is the only time that Mark mentions the Sadducees in his gospel. And there are two things that I'd like for us to know about the Sadducees as we dig into this. Two things we need to know. First, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Mark tells us that in this verse. 
They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead or anything else supernatural for that matter. Second, they did not accept any books as scripture except the Pentateuch, just the books of Moses, just the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. That's all that they considered to be scripture. So to be more specific, they didn't believe in the resurrection because they didn't believe Moses taught it in the first five books of the Bible. That was their belief system. There are lots of ways we could probably compare and contrast the Pharisees and Sadducees, but here's one for you that's hopefully simple. When we really read toward the end of the Bible in Revelation, it says, do not add to the words of this book and do not take away from the words of this book. The Pharisees added. They added the oral tradition. They had all sorts of extra laws and extra ways to keep the laws, so they were adding to the word of God. The Sadducees said, nope, it's only the writings of Moses. We don't want the Psalms. We don't want the prophets. We don't want anything else in the scriptures. We're accepting that. They're taking away. And that's one way you can contrast those two groups. And here it says that some Sadducees came to him. Why did they come? The same reason these other groups kept coming. They wanted to catch him in his words, is what the Pharisees and Herodians were up to. They wanted to trap him. They wanted to trick him. They wanted to get him to say something that he didn't really intend to say. So they have a trick question for him. Continuing in verse 18, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, I know this sounds a little weird to us, but it's taught in the law in the Old Testament. They start off well enough. They say teacher, but they don't have any intention of learning anything from him. They're just using that like, sir, sir. Moses wrote to us. Remember, they accept only the writings of Moses. So they're pulling something that Moses wrote. Moses gave us this command. And what is it? That his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. This practice is called leveret marriage. And in spite of the way it sounds, it doesn't have anything to do with the tribe of Levi. It doesn't have anything to do with the Levitical priesthood or the the Levitical law. Rather, that's actually a word that comes to us from Latin. Leveret means husband's brother or brother-in-law. So it's the law of a brother-in-law. What's going on here? God included this custom in the law in order to protect women and to preserve the inheritance of land and possessions within a family. By raising up offspring for his brother, a man could preserve his brother's name and inheritance. So here's the situation. A man and a woman get married. They didn't have any children. Certainly they didn't have a male heir. And that was a big deal back in that time that in order to pass on the inheritance, in order to pass on the family name, they needed to have a male heir. They need to have a son. Because God had given the children of Israel the promised land, and as you read Joshua, they had apportioned this tribe gets this section, this tribe gets this section, this tribe gets this section. So it mattered that they keep this in the family. It was part of God's promise to them. In order to protect that inheritance, they were looking for a son. And if the husband of that first marriage died, what is that woman going to do? Again, that time and place, very few protections for women. So it would be natural for her to remarry, and rather than go remarry someone else in the same tribe or a different tribe, in order to keep that inheritance, an unmarried brother, the next brother, the closest brother, would then marry that woman. And if they had a son, 
they would often name that son for the deceased. And that first son would be as if he was the deceased man's son. And the inheritance and the family name would continue through him. Does that make sense? You can read more about this in Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6. There it says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall be, not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. There you go. That's what I was just trying to explain to you in the wording of the Old Testament. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it should. Because if you've been coming for a while, we studied the book of Genesis, and this came up with Judah and his sons. And we studied the book of Ruth, and this came up with Ruth and Boaz. So this was a custom. Did it happen very often? I don't know, but we have those two cases in which they followed this process. Verse 20, back in our passage in Mark, now there were seven brothers. Okay. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third, likewise, so the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. They take a long time to get to their question. They set up this crazy story, which may have really happened, probably not. There are a lot of Bible scholars who think this may have been a question, a riddle that they posed to the Pharisees on a regular basis because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and they tried to give them a question they couldn't answer. Maybe you've been in conversations like that where they're just trying to trip you up and ask you a question that nobody knows the answer to. Well, that's, that's the question. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? Quick review. What do they believe? They don't believe in the resurrection. So it's a false premise to begin with. They're saying, if all of this happens here on earth, in the resurrection, since you think there's a resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be? If people are following the law of Moses here on earth, and if doing so resulted in multiple men being married to one woman, and if God, see, they're assuming that God intends monogamy, meaning one man, one woman, that's the way it's supposed to work here on earth. They just assume that's the way it should work in heaven. If all of this is true, then how could God possibly sort that out in eternity? How do we know? How would God even know who she should be married to for eternity? If there is even a resurrection, if there is any afterlife. What they're trying to do here is present an absurd riddle and their objective is to prove that the whole idea of resurrection is absurd. They're trying to throw the whole thing out based on their presuppositions. Now, I told you that the Sadducees did not believe that any of the other books beyond the first five were scripture. So if you or I were trying to talk to a Sadducee and say, oh, but the Old Testament does tell about the resurrection. It, it did tell us about the resurrection before Christ. That's true. Here are a couple, and if you ever have an opportunity to talk to someone, say, where's the resurrection in the Old Testament? Here are a couple of obvious ones. Daniel 12, 2, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So in the book of Daniel, 
in the prophetic section, he has this one verse that talks about the idea of resurrection. This is what many of the children of Israel, by the time of Jesus, would have drawn on as far as the idea of there's a resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. That's what they were looking for. But the Sadducees would say, nope, that's not part of the books of Moses. I think one of the best illustrations, best mentions of resurrection in the Old Testament is in the book of Job. This is Job chapter 19, verses 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. When you think about when we think Job lived and when this would have been written, it is amazing that he is saying this. I know my Redeemer lives. I know that he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, again, think of who's saying this, someone who's covered in boils, someone who's experienced great suffering, physical suffering. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. In my flesh I shall see God. He believed in a resurrection. Whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So that is a great proof, I believe, from the Old Testament about the resurrection, but if you're a Sadducee, you'd say, nope, I reject that. That's not Scripture. Okay. They also assumed, incorrectly, that the resurrection was just, you just resume what's going on here even better. Because for people who don't believe there's any life after death, if they have anything to continue their legacy, it would have to be their family. So family would have been a big deal to them. And they just thought, all right, if there's an afterlife at all, then it's just continuing the way it always has been. And there's husbands and wives and fathers and children and mothers and all the different relationships we have here. What they believed is that when the body died, the soul died. And we understand that the soul, the part of us, that makes us us, will live forever. It will go on and on. But what they didn't understand is that we will have a new body for that soul. Some people call this, what you see up here, this is an earth suit. Okay, This is what is appropriate for this life and time. And you have one and I have one. But when we die, we know that that's going to decompose going to go back to dust. But God is going to raise us up and there is a resurrection body. You can read more about that a little bit later in the chapter we were reading earlier, 1 Corinthians 15. There is a resurrection body that we are hoping for. I don't mean just I hope it happens, but we have an expectation, a confident expectation. We have faith that we are going to receive a new body that is appropriate, is fit for eternity. So what have we said so far? Life will be different in heaven. It's not just going to be a continuation of everything we've experienced here on earth, the, the same relationships and everything else. There will be something different. Our relationships will be different in heaven, and certainly our bodies will be different in heaven. Verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? That's an important word. Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? Now, so often when he dealt with the Pharisees, he pointed out their hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? It's wearing a mask. It's pretending to be something you're not. He doesn't actually call them that here. 
certainly not in Mark. What's he saying? He's saying they're ignorant. I'm not sure that's any nicer, but it's a different take. He's telling them, you are mistaken. What does that mean? Literally, it means you are deceiving yourselves. You are self-deceived. You're believing a lie. Why? He gives two reasons. You do not know the scriptures, and you do not know the power of God. You are mistaken because of these two things. You don't understand the true meaning of the scriptures. Because they could have quoted you Moses backward and forward. But they didn't know how to apply that information to their lives. They, They would have done great at Bible trivia. But not so well at Bible application. And he's saying, you don't know the scriptures. And what's more, you don't know the power of God. They denied the idea of resurrection. They denied the supernatural. And as such, they denied the power of God. Someone said, his power to overcome death and give life. That's what our God can do. He can create the world out of nothing. Romans says that he calls things that are dead as that did not exist as though they did. He can do that with his words. Now, I can imagine that some of you may be thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not like those Sadducees. They're so proud and they ignore half of Scripture or lots of Scripture and and they don't believe in a resurrection. I believe in resurrection. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. That's good. That's good. But I think before we get too carried away condemning them, we need to stop and ask ourselves these same questions that are stated here. Is it possible that we are mistaken? Is it possible that we are deceiving ourselves? Do we know the scriptures? Obviously, that starts by reading the Bible. You cannot know what you have not read. So we need to read We need to study, and some of us just don't have time to do that. And I say that facetiously because we all have time. We have time to keep up with news and sports and weather. We have time to keep up with social media. We could probably find time, if it were a priority to us, to open his word and read it and study it and interact with others about it. Because there's no way we're going to know this book if we don't read this book, if we don't listen to it being read to us. But we can't stop there either. Because they knew the content of those books of Moses, but they didn't know how to apply them to life. That's wisdom, right? Knowledge and the ability to apply it. That's wisdom. We have to be able to apply God's word to our own lives. We need to be able to help others apply it to their lives. And we have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. What about the second part? What about the power of God? Again, you may be thinking, oh, I'm glad I'm not like those Sadducees. I believe in all 66 books of the Bible. I believe in miracles. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Is your life being changed to be more like Jesus? Because the same power that raised him from the dead lives in us. Our lives shouldn't go on day after day, year after year, the same. 
We are supposed to be going from glory into glory. We're supposed to be being made more into his glorious likeness. We're supposed to be looking more like Jesus over time. We're not going to be perfect. Don't misunderstand me. We're still going to suffer. We're still going to experience temptation and sin while we're here in this body on this planet. But the trajectory of our lives, it should look different. We should become more Christ-like over time. If not, we're denying the power of God, folks. When we say we can't get victory over sin, we're denying the power of God. And that's what he is telling them. He's saying, you are mistaken. You are self-deceived. You are in error. Because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. We've reached verse 25 and I told you that both our main points appear here. So let's review them. Number one, God raises the dead. Number two, human relationships will be different in heaven. So what does that look like? This is, Jesus has first corrected them, told them where they've gotten off track, and now he starts to answer their question. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. The first thing I'm going to point out there is that it says when. When they rise from the dead. Not if they rise from the dead. It's not an uncertainty. Jesus knows when they, and I think he's implying the resurrection of the just, when the righteous rise from the dead. They neither marry, and that means a husband would enter into a marriage contract, or are given in marriage. That would be typically a young lady. The marriages back then were arranged by the parents. So they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So in the resurrection, there's not going to be marriage, as we understand it. There's not going to be physical intimacy. There is not going to be children being born. In this time, on this earth, God designed marriage to be companionship. Remember back in Genesis? The first thing God said was not good is that man should be alone. I will make a helper, a completer, one who will complete him. And together, male and female, husband and wife, reflect the image of God. And they work together as one. That, that's marriage as it's defined in Genesis. One of the reasons for marriage, in addition to that companionship, that intimacy, one of the reasons is to populate the earth. And we, we read, we read about Looking for a godly seed is, is the story of the Old Testament, waiting for that Messiah to come after sin entered the world. But there's not a need for additional people to be born. There won't be a need for more babies in heaven because there won't be any more death. The earth isn't going to have to be repopulated, the new heaven and new earth, I mean, because there won't be death anymore. Read Revelation, it's great. You get to those last chapters, 20, 21, 22, death will be cast into the lake of fire. Amen? That's good news right there. Babies will not be born. These two ideas, as, as we approach this, 
they point out some real flaws in LDS, in Mormonism. Heaven is not going to be you and your new wife populating your own planet. Jesus said, no, we're getting there, that, that marriage, as we understand it, won't exist, and there certainly won't be new babies born in heaven. Okay? As you read the Quran telling you that there will be many, many wives. No. In fact, you won't even have one wife as we understand marriage. That's what Jesus said. We have to know what the Bible says so that we know the power of God, right? So it seems there's no marriage in heaven. Now, please don't raise your hands. Some of you are thinking, oh, that's good news. Or some of you are thinking, oh, that's awful. How will I get along? So don't tell me which camp you fall into. If you want to set up a time for counseling this week, you just let me know. But what this is saying is that that need for companionship, that need for procreation, those don't exist that way in eternity. John MacArthur said it this way, Jesus was emphasizing the fact that in heaven there will be no exclusive or sexual relationships. Believers will experience an entirely new existence in which they will have perfect spiritual relationships with everyone else. That same unity that you're desiring to have with your spouse, we're going to have that, spiritually speaking, with everybody. Because we'll all be believers. We will all be changed into his glorious likeness. That'll be part of what heaven is. Now, let's say a few things that that doesn't mean, because I don't want to confuse you. This statement Jesus is making does not mean that you won't recognize other people. I won't even know who my spouse is. No, that's not it. I like how one pastor said it. We're not going to be dumber then than we are now. We're going to know. We're going to recognize people. I will know that I was married to Rochelle. We will have friendship. We will visit together. But what this is saying is that we're not going to establish a new home there in heaven together. We're not going to have any more babies in heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says, like angels in heaven, I I told you earlier that there were two things I wanted you to know about the Sadducees. I'm going to add one more. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels or demons. So when Jesus says they'll be like the angels in heaven, he's describing this is what it's going to be like in the resurrection. They didn't believe that. People are going to be like angels in heaven. They didn't believe that. But he's correcting their wrong thinking. Whatever distinction there is now between angels and people is going to continue in heaven. We'll still know who the angels are and who the people are. Please do not buy into the thinking of the world or Hollywood or anything else that when we die, we get to go to heaven and be angels. That's false. God created a specific number. I don't know how big the number is. It's a big number. God created a specific number of angels at the beginning. When I read Job, I think it happened before the creation of the world. But very early on, He created a finite number of angels. And a number of them, a large number, but a minority of them, we think based on Revelation, a third, rebelled with Lucifer, Satan, and became demons, fallen angels. We can talk more about that and have before. We'll talk about it again on another day. I'm not wanting to get sidetracked too much there. But we do not become angels when we die. Please don't think that. That's not true. But he says that we will be like angels. How so? Angels don't die. 
And in our resurrection bodies, we will not die. We will live forever with God. Now, he's answered the marriage part. He kind of went in reverse order from what they asked. Verse 26, But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? There's his question for them. How does he start off? He's done this to the Pharisees before as well. Have you not read? Now, do you think they had read? This is what they spent much of their daily lives doing, probably. They had not only read what they considered the scriptures, many of them had probably memorized large portions or maybe all of the writings of Moses. Because that's what he says. Have you not read in the book of Moses? Why does he pick that? Because he's going to prove to them the resurrection based on the books of Moses because that's what they accepted as scriptures. And they said, it's not there. We've read it backward and forward. We have large parts memorized. Resurrection is not there. He says, hang on. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage? Now, if all they accept as scripture are the books of Moses, don't you suppose they've probably read the passage about the burning bush? Why does he say it that way, though? Well, I think most of you know the chapters and verses didn't come until much, much later. So they had to reference some way. So he says, all right, instead of, in Exodus 3 and 4, he says, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage? That's how he's setting up his question. What did he say? He quotes, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So what is the argument Jesus is making? Because it's a very interesting one. Often when we talk about there's a soul, there's part of you that's never going to die. That's true, but that's not what Jesus is trying to argue. He argues for a resurrection based on God and his part rather than us having a material and an immaterial part. So in spite of the fact, remember, God is talking out of a burning bush that's not being consumed, a miracle in and of itself. Don't know how the Sadducees felt about that. God is speaking to Moses about the fact that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had died hundreds of years before, 400, 500 years before at this point, God was still their God because they were still alive. Because we think of God, God, eternity past, eternity future. God has always been, God will always be. Yeah, we get that. But in English, we would make the verb tenses, God was their God back when they were alive. But that's not what it says. It says God is their God. God is still their God even though they've died. Why? Because they haven't stopped to existing. They still exist. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. That's his point. Why? Why does that matter? God made promises to each of these men. We call them covenants. Fancy word. He made a covenant to Abraham, and it's described as an everlasting covenant. Now, this will take a lot of imagination, but just for, the, just for a moment, say that I'm God, and I'm making a promise to you, and it's an everlasting promise, and then you die, and you vanish, and you cease to exist. Is that an everlasting promise? Somebody say no. 
No, it can't be an everlasting promise if I can't fulfill it for eternity. So for God to be able to make this promise, and it's an everlasting covenant, that means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will exist forever. So even though they don't have their resurrection bodies yet, the immaterial part of them, their soul, is with God. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are dead. I like what Kent Hughes wrote in his commentary. God is not the God of that which has ceased to be. He can't be. He makes eternal promises because he's an eternal God, but he made us, once we are born, the soul lasts forever. Another pastor, Gary Reimers, said, an everlasting covenant implies an everlasting relationship. That relationship that God had to Abraham, the one he had to Isaac, the one he had to Jacob, that goes on and on and on because he's making promises that are intended to last forever. And he, Jesus ends with the statement again. He repeats himself, you are greatly mistaken. You are greatly deceived. And Mark doesn't tell us their response. I kind of assume that they backed off and we'll read next week that the next group came in to try to trick Jesus with another question. But he took what they thought was an impossible riddle, certainly an absurd story. They thought that he couldn't answer it all. And he took it and not only answered their question, he corrected their doctrine in the process. Why? Because in spite of what the Sadducees believed or didn't believe, God raises the dead, and human relationships are different in heaven. So let's take those two statements and apply them a little bit more to us as we close. The fact that God raises the dead, if there's someone online with us today, someone here in this room, if you've never believed on Jesus as Savior, please understand that Hebrews 9.27 is a promise. And there are lots of promises in Scripture that we like, and we post them on our refrigerator or put them on your bathroom mirror or your dashboard. This one says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. What's the promise there? People die. And after death comes judgment. That's a promise. God is judge. And he will judge rightly. And God, to be holy and consistent with his person, has to judge sin. Romans 3.23 says the wages, the payment for sin, the payment due is death. It's 6.23, yes, I'm sorry. The first part of 6.23 talks about the wages of sin being death. Somebody had to die for my sin. And somebody had to die for your sin. And thanks be to God that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die in my place. He took the punishment for my sin. So that God, as a righteous judge, could look and say, guilty, and I was, and you are. 
but Jesus Christ took my punishment on him. He was my substitute. He was sacrificed in my place. And I can receive eternal life with God in heaven. That is my hope based on what Jesus did for me. I believe it. I have received his gift of salvation, and you can too. Believers, do you believe in the resurrection? The correct answer is yes. I hope all of you are saying yes or nodding your head. Good. Do you understand what it means? We've we've just scratched the surface today, but the importance of the resurrection, our faith depends on it. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. Our hope depends on it, according to Titus 2. Our justification depends on it, according to Romans 4. Our sanctification depends on it, according to Romans 6. Romans 6, 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. I said a little while ago, we shouldn't stay where we are. We should be progressing. We call this sanctification. It's a process from when we get saved to the last breath. We should be becoming more like Christ. And it's a journey. It's a process. Has its ups and downs because of our sinful flesh. But this is saying that he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we should walk in newness of life. The character of my life is based on the resurrection. Has the fact that Jesus rose from the dead even entered your mind in the last six days? I hope it has. But we can get so caught up in the here and now that we don't think spiritually, we don't think eternally. And if nothing else, if this passage can get us to think again about eternity and resurrection and salvation, then this has been time well spent this morning. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Earlier I prayed that the Holy Spirit would encourage us where we need it this morning. Is there anybody who by uplifted hand would say, I've been encouraged this morning by something I've seen in this passage, something God has shown me. Good. Good. Is there anybody who would say, I've been challenged this morning by something I've seen in this passage. God's working on me. Maybe the Holy Spirit has convicted you and, and you are talking to him about it right now in your heart. Is there anyone who would say that by uplifted hand? Yes, yes, several. Praise the Lord. Is there anyone who would say, Bob, I'm not sure of my eternal destination. I don't know whether the resurrection is a good thing for me because I don't know whether I'm saved. But I'm concerned about it this morning. Would you let me know that by putting your hand up and putting it back down? Our Father, you know our needs. Thank you for the encouragement that you've offered some here today. We need it in this dark world around us. How great to know that our God is powerful. How great to know 
that he has given us his word. How great to know that we have the hope of eternal life because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the fact that you raised him from the dead. Lord, I pray for those who said that they have been challenged or convicted this morning. Lord, as they do business in their hearts with you, show them very specifically how you want them to respond, what you want them to do. Lord, we desire to be doers of the word and not hearers only because we don't want to be deceived like the Sadducees we saw in our passage today. So I pray that you would make that path clear and that we would be an encouragement to one another in walking in your truth and walking in your ways. Lord, continue to work your will in our hearts. Guide us. Make us more like you. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts today and throughout this week to practice what you've shown us. In Jesus' name, amen.